Welcome back, Anne. Thank you. Well, let's see. Little Abigail is about four and a half months old now. Yes. Well, how are the two of y'all getting along? We're good. Just busy and chaos, and I can't believe how fast she grows. Every day it surprises me. And her brother, her older brother, oh, William. He, he is doing great, too. We're all just kind of living life, and he is a, a big brother extraordinaire. Finally, he has somebody to be in charge of, so he's pretty pleased. I'm sure he is. <laughs> Well, by the way, um, you're listening to Faith and Reason 360, and we'd like to welcome everyone to another interesting podcast. In fact, this will be a series of four podcasts using audio of Father Richard Rohr from one of our Faith and Reason seminars, where Father Rohr describes what he calls the nine stages of spiritual development. And I'm Deborah Dykes, here with Ann Phelps. Yes, I'm glad to be back after a brief family leave time. Uh, it's wonderful to be back in the studio and having these great conversations with you. And I'm, it's wonderful having you back, Anne. I really missed you. Um, well, uh, before we begin, I do want to make a little announcement. Our Faith and Reason 360 podcasts are free to all listeners. And if any of you are interested in supporting our podcast with a small donation, please visit our website at faithandreason.org, F-A-I-T-H-A-N-D-R-E-A-S-O-N.org. And there's no such thing as a donation too small. So $1, $5, or $50, your tax free gift will help us to continue to provide good podcast programs. So please visit our website and make a small donation. Go ahead, Anne. All right. So we are excited to jump in with uh, some insight from Father Richard Rohr on uh, the different stages of religious and spiritual consciousness. What characterizes a spiritually mature person? And you see that they, uh, certainly at the highest levels, the ones we'd call the mystics, the saints, and this is the reason they can be compassionate, they can forgive, they can live outside of therefore a quid pro quo equation, is because they think non-dualistically. It's both and. It's not either or anymore. All right. So we are considering what characterizes a spiritually mature person. Um, one of the words that, that Rohr uses in this description is dualism, that this is someone who is able to live outside that dualistic nature. Um, Devo, what exactly does that mean? Well, I hear Father Rohr saying um, that many Christians have spent a better portion of our lives, their lives, our lives, organizing um, themselves or ourselves around what they believe, and I put quotation marks around there, um, personal morality, uh, who's in, who's mm -hmm. out mm -hmm. of God's favor. Now, that, that's an important piece. Um, Rohr seems to be saying it's, not, it's sort of a tribal approach to yeah. religion. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, an in-group and an out-group kind of thinking. Yeah, when I think of dualism, it's, it's that... It's deep within us, and it's it's this instinct that we have to divide things into categories that are binaries, whether that's male and female or 
us and them or Democrat, Republican or um, Orthodox, not Orthodox, right? There, there are these ways that we understand self and other. And one of the things that I think is so essential to understanding dualism is this idea that we can't, it is just intrinsically impossible for us to understand these things that we divide into two categories as equal. We always give preference to one. So one becomes better than the other. And of course, the one that we think is better, unless we are in sort of an oppressed group, is the group that we're a part of. So That's if right. we are Christian and others are other, we will put Christian above other. And what what steers that uh, dualistic uh, thinking is ego. Absolutely. Richard talks about ego. And mm -hmm. so... Uh, that's why we get into where, wherever we are on that spectrum, uh, right. whatever group we seem to identify with, right. that's the right group, right. and the others so we, are wrong. Exactly, and we can think of, I mean, countless, countless examples of what dualistic thinking is be, because it's not even something that we have to identify or name. It is our norm. It is the way we see the world as human beings. And so I think it begs the question, if he says that a spiritually mature person at these higher levels of spirituality is living beyond that duality, what does that look like? So we've, we've understood that dualism pervades everything. It's what everything just defaults to. So what does it look like to live beyond that dualism? Well, I think Father Rohr makes a good point, and it may come in the next clip, but um, to live as a uh, and a person with dualistic thinking, you're really living at a very low level, mm -hmm. a, a very low level of awareness, and you really are robbed of the fullness of life. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people who are in a dualistic type of a, um, thinking, and they never actually grow out of that, mm -hmm. and they don't grow out of it for very definite reasons. Mm -hmm. It's very hard work mm -hmm. to move beyond these Absolutely. comfort zones. Yeah and this type of thinking, and most people don't even know that they're they're even experiencing life at that low level. So it makes me curious, Deva, where have you seen this in the world? Where have you seen a person or a, a, an institution even that has moved beyond that? Who comes to mind when you think of someone who is spiritually mature and not living into that dualistic nature? Well, I wanna first go to who do I identify with immediately right now? Mm -hmm where we are living in uh, a dualistic world. I think that this nation at this present time is um, embraced in or uh, captured by or held hostage by a dualistic thinking public. Absolutely. The growing sense of nationalism, I think, is a great example of dualism um, in its essence, this this identity that we are a certain thing, whether that be American, whether that be, you know, you and I are both white, um, whether that be whatever whatever that example is, um, and trying to boil our nation down to to be just like me, um, it absolutely is dualistic. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think of people who who transcend that. Um, you know, it can be. It doesn't have to be a spiritual leader. You know, it can be just someone that you meet that you can just get the sense that this person isn't out to defeat you or be better than you, um, but is in fact curious about the the way that reality is in the world. Um, and it's so refreshing 
and rare in our culture to encounter that. I think. Well, and those types of individuals aren't looking for someone to blame. They're right. not looking for someone to hate. Right. They're not looking for someone they can mm-hmm. shoot. Mm-hmm. Um, these are people that have uh, taken upon themselves to do that hard work. Absolutely. So dualism is a is a is is sometimes it's hard and a difficult concept to grasp but once you get it mm-hmm. once you see it mm-hmm. you you can't go back absolutely absolutely so, who's right and who's wrong is no longer the guiding question of your life and and you you move so quickly past that and you mm-hmm. become so aware of it absolutely so how about let's listen to what father roar has to say in our next clip unfortunately the concept of faith became believing difficult things are are believing uh, things to be true that you couldn't prove that's what developed after the enlightenment we had to prove that we were right and science was wrong and uh so we took a different level but unfortunately i don't think that even comes close to the biblical concept of faith it's not living with a bunch of glib certitudes it's rather clear in the Hebrew Scriptures and the Christian Scriptures, that, uh, in fact, faith is to be able to live with mystery. So faith is the ability to live with that mystery, is how he ends that. And what a, a rich and full statement. That word faith is so complicated. Um, I think he points to something really, really worth lifting up in that clip, and it's this idea that we took faith, the concept of faith as it was first articulated, and, and almost turned it inside out, completely reversed it. It it was intended to mean to be able to sit with things you don't know and, and be okay with that, and not just okay with that, but to value that and, and find that richness in the mystery. But somehow, through the process of the Enlightenment, we have taken this term faith and turned it into the importance of certainty to sit, to, to not sit with that uncertainty, mm-hmm. but to say, I'm going to dig my heels in and claim that I'm certain about it anyway and, mm-hmm. and try and prove things. And, you know, I think that that enlightenment piece um, that he speaks about in this clip is something that can get lost. And we've talked about it in, in various podcasts, but for those who haven't had the opportunity to hear that, um, I think it's important to revisit what exactly that means. So, so he's referring to this use of the term faith before, 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 before what is the question. And the, mm-hmm. the, the answer would be the Enlightenment, right? So the Enlightenment was this time period in philosophy and in culture and science that science basically was created. And it was this um, time sort of from the, you know, late 1300s through the, through now, really, right. yeah. um, where we decided that what we could know in our brains and in our minds is what made something true. Um, there, you know, in philosophy, it was this this maxim: "I think, therefore I am." Um, and in in science, it Ooh, was really Rudolph this, Otto. <laughs> I mean, it's a, and it, well, and and even that was a reference um, back to older older thinkers and and Descartes. And you know, I think that um, there's there was a shift in science of the Copernican revolution that, that that we realized that the earth was not at the center of the universe, that the sun was, and we could prove these things. And suddenly this ability to prove something became the way that we operate in the world. So we know something because it can be quote unquote proven. 
And so that became the gold standard by which we valued ideas. Can we prove it? And can we know it? And the best people are the ones who know the most things. And that culture is so pervasive now and so central to who we are as a species that we don't even realize it dictates the way we think and move in the world. And so faith became that process of knowing and certainty. Can we prove the Bible? Can we prove that God created the world in seven days? Can we prove that Jesus was born to a, a you know, a, a certain kind of woman? Can we prove that the resurrection happened to a body? As opposed to the ability to acknowledge that mystery, that, that Jesus is both God and human, and to value the fact that we can't know it. Yeah, faith is, my understanding is that faith is not about understanding the ways of God. It's, mm-hmm. it's, faith is really about reverencing precisely what we do not understand. It's, it is, as right. Richard says, it's the mystery of the life force that generates life for all of us. Right. And it's really about embracing our uh, sitting still, our... Um, walking through a forest and being in awe mm-hmm. of your surroundings um, and that we don't have to understand. I love how he ended it when he was mm-hmm. saying, uh, Augustine in the fourth century, where he says, if you comprehend it, it is not God. I think that's so beautiful. And and that that valuation and, and that characteristic, that kind of faith is so necessary, I think, to life in the 21st century, to, to the times we live in now, because it is so easy to fall into this dependence on certitudes, right? But but when we face the big questions of our lives, um, I think of things like, how do I participate in a world? How do I get dressed in the morning knowing that my clothes were made in unjust situations? Mm. How do I eat food every day? knowing that it was prepared and produced and and got to the shelves of my grocery store in ways that make me complicit in the oppression of someone else. It certainly was. That is the world we live in. And faith isn't turning a blind eye to that or being certain that, that God wanted us to be on top of some global food chain. It is the thing that can get you through when you allow yourself to feel sorrow for that system. It is the thing that can allow you to sit with that injustice. You know, I have this new baby girl and I've got had two and a half wonderful years with a baby boy and already seeing the ways that the world privileges him. And how do you move through life not being able to face that reality and seeing that there are struggles that she's going to face just by nature of how she was born? Um Faith is is not that I have the answers for her. I can't fix the patriarchy for my daughter, but it is the thing that allows me to move forward anyway, to see it, acknowledge it, and confess that I participate in it while still being able to do my best to dismantle it. That reminds me when David and I lived in Denver, Colorado, um, I was on staff at St. John's Episcopal Cathedral. We took a group of youth to Guatemala and one night as we returned home from the work we were helping to build a school I went into one of our youth uh, person's room and she was sitting there on the edge of her bed just sobbing and I went over to her and I said what is the matter Mm -hmm. and she just sobbed and sobbed and we had attended a um, a, a service with these local people and she was crying and she said 
I am so sad. My heart is broken. I could never have the level of faith Mm. that these people have. Mm. And what she saw was how little these people had, but how deep and strong their faith was. Mm -hmm. Because she realized that faith is not something that you can control. Mm -hmm. It is not something that you can necessarily see. Mm -hmm. And it's not even something that you necessarily can understand. Yeah, her faith wasn't rooted in in the the certainty that you'll have the material needs that you, you have, that those will be met tonight. But faith is being able to rejoice when you don't know that those needs might be met. Let's move on to the third clip in this session. To move from any stage to the next one, you have to go through a certain period of not knowing. The old game, the old paradigm, where you've found comfort the last five, seven years, has to fall apart. It has to fail you. It has to disappoint you. Without it, you'll just stay there. Do you understand? Now, if you're not taught how to do the transitioning, how to pass over uh, and and let go and trust that you're being led to a a new level, most people stay. And the evidence now is the vast majority of our people are at stage two and three, even church people. And in fact, they use religion as a justification to stay at levels two and three. So they're certain about everything. They know who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. They know who God likes and who God doesn't like. Uh, they've eaten bushel loads of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right? Which, as you know, is the, the sin that uh, drove us out of the Garden of Eden. This certitude about who's right and who's wrong. And conveniently, always placing ourselves on the side of the right. So I might be the only one, but there's something somewhat harrowing about this quote. And it is that he says the majority of us abide in that two or three space our whole lives. And it makes you nervous, right? Have I had the opportunity to go beyond that, to transcend that in my own spiritual development? And it, it, it's the kind of thing that can make you nervous. <laughs> well, it does. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it really calls for self-examination. Absolutely. Um, and, of course, when I first was introduced to these nine stages by Richard Rohr, mm-hmm. I immediately started assessing my of own course. place. Where am I? Which uh, is like a delightfully three, level three behavior. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, at least you didn't give me a level one. Yeah. At least I'm a level three. <laughs> That's encouraging. But it's, but it's so true, right? I mean, these levels, and, and, and we'll get into this more as we move forward, but, you know, at these different levels, level two, um, where, you, where, where you're certain, you have to be certain that you're right, certain that you're wrong, and there is no space for that, that faithful embrace of mystery. But level three, right, becomes sort of the flip side of that. It's when you decide that you are the things that you have learned and your ability to critique those certainties, you sort of learn um, for me, it looked like the process of, of being a very confident biblical literalist in my youth and then going to college and becoming a religion major and being a very confident critic of those things <laughs> right. and being certain 
that they were wrong oh, as yes. opposed to certain they were right. Um, but but that move beyond that mm-hmm. level, which is where he goes from here, that's the really hard piece. To... It's so hard. I mean, just think about level one. Yeah. Um, and he relates to it as, as the infant. Mm-hmm. When uh, I remember Marcus Borg talking about original sin, and mm-hmm. he talked about um, the awareness of the self and mm-hmm. spending the rest of our lives moving beyond the self. Yeah. And so he talks about um, the natural narcissism. So yeah. the infant has natural narcissism. But then as an adult, mm-hmm. uh, if we continue to cultivate right. that centering on the self, if we continue to live in that narcissistic state, yeah. then, wow, you're just paralyzed not only to yourself to the world to everyone around you right and I think that involvement of others around us is so key to the the movement beyond this um two three level these certainties and and the idea that our education becomes who we are and can teach us um if you don't have a community of support around you or someone to help teach you and guide you through this transformation it can be almost impossible I suppose it is possible, but it's hard to imagine it being possible to transcend that dualistic thinking that characterizes these these earlier levels of spiritual development. You're going to, rather than, you know, if someone comes to you and challenges your belief system, rather than trying to embrace and engage and absorb that, you're going to dig your heels in and just say, that person is wrong, that person is of the devil, or, or whatever you want to use as a category. And, and I think that... Um, mentors and friends and and even it doesn't even have to be somebody you know but you know brilliant writers who move you those are the kinds of things that can allow us to to carve out that safe space to be critical enough of ourselves and our certainties and that can allow us to critique the self harshly enough to sit in that dark space that is required to move beyond it and uh, in critiquing oneself, um, I wonder, do we even know, are we even aware? Mm-hmm. Uh, Father Roe talks, talks again in level one about how that level one place is driven by fear and mm-hmm. anger. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, he, and he also makes the comment I found just startling, where he says, uh, for example, a person in level one is going to vote for the candidate who promises to provide Absolutely. security and stuff. That's right. And it's all driven by fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, g- the idea of grace is a complete unknown Absolutely. to someone at level one. It's just not possible when you're operating out of that fear-based paradigm. And, and, you know, even when you move beyond that into the second and third levels of spiritual development, as Roar defines them, I think... Um, it's so difficult to transcend that narcissism, that natural narcissism that we need as infants to survive as a species. I mean, it's, it's important right. that it's there. We need it. But transcending beyond it is what makes life beautiful. I mean, I think he really captures these these early levels, these two and three levels, um, in such a beautiful way when he says, you know, these are the folks that have eaten bushel loads of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I just thought that's so poetic because – I remember being young and hearing that story and and thinking, now why is the original sin to know things? That seems like the answer, not the problem. And and 
it only is a, as you move forward, you can re-engage that story and that symbolism and know that that certainty is in fact the sickness, not not the healing. Well, I think we're going to close this one out. We're trying to make them a, our podcast a little uh, more brief so that uh, people can enjoy them possibly a little bit more and not have to pause and come back. So again, this is the first of four um, and, uh, with Father Roar. And uh, I, I think having this podcast, uh, this kind of exchange with Father Roar and sharing it with our listeners is really important and helpful uh, in understanding, especially now, the times that we're living in. And in our next podcast, we'll talk about, uh, we'll talk a little more, we'll review probably some of stage one, but we'll talk about stages two and three uh, of spiritual development, and we'll find out what Father Roar has to say about that. If you're interested, also, this comes from a Faith and Reason seminar that uh, was produced years ago, but it is available as a, a DVD or a USB drive, and the uh, seminar is called um, The Human Spirit and the Times We Live In. So please visit our website and faith, at faithandreason.org, and uh, if you're interested, you can purchase that, and you want to share one more thing with us before we close out? Absolutely. This program is produced by Faith and Reason, a program of the D.L. Dykes Jr. Foundation.